0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Building Security in the Next Decade podcast. I'm Sammy Miguez. And I'm Drew Kilborn. Together, we have about 60 years of experience in the software and security spaces. This is where we talk with industry leaders about the cybersecurity challenges waiting for all of us just over the horizon. Today, it's our great pleasure to introduce our friend, Keith Gordon. Keith is the Chief Security Officer for CIBC, that's the Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, with responsibility over a broad range of areas that include cybersecurity, fraud, physical security, technology risk management, and business continuity, disaster recovery, crisis management, and business and technology architecture, enterprise data, and analytics and AI. And that's just what he does in the morning. You don't wanna know what he does in the afternoon. In his previous role, Keith was CISO for Ally Financial, and before that, he worked at Bank of America in global information security. There, he had roles such as business information security officer, cyber threat intelligence, and customer protection. He also had roles where he focused on technology risk, security, fraud, as well as authentication, security strategies, and product development. He, his teams led efforts to define and build enterprise standards for application security, and for vulnerability management and compliance. So Keith covers a lot of territory. We're really happy to have him here. He graduated from Anderson University with a Bachelor of Arts degree in marketing and mathematics, and this is going to be a great conversation. Keith, thank you for being here.
1: Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Always good to hang out.
2: It's great. Keith, it's so great to have you, man. We've uh I think it's been about 15, 16 years we've been working together. So we've seen a lot of stuff in that time and looking forward to kind of chatting about some of that today. So let's jump right in. So I wanna, you know, the podcast is really about looking forward, but for a second, I want to look backward. Um, if you look back, let's say five, five, seven years, what do you think is probably the biggest innovation? that got us to where we are today from a cybersecurity perspective?
1: Well, that's a bit of a loaded question, Drew, because there's been a lot, I think, happened over the past five to seven years. But I I think it's a combination of multiple things. Um, You know, if you think about client expectations as one, the dynamic of what clients are expecting of us as banks, has significantly changed and the awareness around cyber threats has significantly changed. You know, today you can turn on the news and pretty much any, any evening, you're gonna see something on the news, either local or national about some sort of new cyber threat. And how should we as constituents or our clients respond to that? Whereas five, six, seven years ago, it was an anomaly. So that's one thing, is that there's broader awareness around the threats that exist. But if you think about banking too, the and you call it an innovation, but I don't know if it's just been that banks have really understood the implications of not funding the right level of controls and really looking around the corner to understand what are the threats coming, how can we invest, to really get us to a place where our clients are feeling more comfortable, but at the same time, we're still driving uh, that level of tension. Healthy tension is the word that I like to use.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right? good.
1: Yeah, because if you look at 15 years ago, there was some stuff that we were just playing around with. And you know, I, I kind of joked in some cases I called it security theater because – may have provided a little bit of security benefit but ultimately some of it was more about testing and learning is this thing going to work we're going to try different things and see how can we evade the threat actors in a the most creative way while still keeping the the uh, client interaction safe Mm -hmm. right so you know i think the events probably if you think about the events changing over the years the threat actors have just gotten i'm going to call it more lazy right because they went from really <laughs> working hard at building this ecosystem of kind of here's all of the different layers of things they can go steal and sell and now they're just they're just going to drop a ransomware right they're going to go after one thing and and if they um they don't have to really work as hard as they used to right because they used to spend so much time going up to individuals now that still happens obviously but it's become easier for them to monetize um, mm-hmm. in today's market around just the, the type of uh, malicious software that's being leveraged.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, wow. Uh, l- let, me, let me ask you uh, a few questions, a handful of things. I, I'm really interested in this in this sort of healthy tension idea. So would you, and this is not any about any particular bank or necessarily even about financial institutions in general, there's lots of highly regulated places, you know, um, healthcare, insurance, uh, finance, fintech, medical devices, et cetera. So just generally, what's, what do you see as sort of that dividing line between it's actually better security to do X, whatever X is, and it just looks better to be doing X. And I don't mean to minimize it, but it looks better to the public that I'm doing X. You know what I mean? How how much of that are are executives having to deal with today? You can't not be seen to be doing this, even though the return on security investment is kind of marginal.
1: For sure, I, and I'll I'll answer it in a couple of different ways. As you look at it on an internal network, you know many of us are moving towards you know that zero trust methodology, which in many ways requires a little bit more sometimes for even the end user to add additional control of, okay, I'm going to go after this certain set of data. That's a little bit more sensitive data. I'm gonna potentially step you up, or I'm gonna do something to further validate. Do you have access to it? Are the right controls in place for you to actually go see it, use it, potentially download it? Mm-hmm. So, right, so there there are still some tension points that we need to put on the internal network, but as you go external to a client and that interaction model, as we're driving authentication and transaction authorization to a much deeper view, we're having to even drive that to a point where you said, sometimes I'm just gonna drop a stepped up authentication to you on a more consistent basis to continue to validate that we're getting the right behaviors. Because ultimately we're trying to drive that And the term that I use is behavioral biometrics. Is your behavior normal for you? And can we set a baseline, what that looks like? So for my authentication controls, for my fraud controls, I can go back to that baseline to see in the future, as we get more data, do we need to do more? And that's where I get to that tension point of sometimes we actually have to put more tension in the system to learn more about who's at the other end of the line, or do we really need to ensure that as we look at our transactions, we're risk ranking the types of transactions that we need to automatically add that additional layer of control or tension?
0: Yeah. Yeah, so let me, just a quick follow-up. Would you equate this then with, you know, how a lot of people think of DevSecOps today, if we're gonna put some Sec in devops then by definition we're creating some friction and and the whole um okr kpi you know that we're looking for is to increase friction in alignment with productivity and not to increase friction frivolously so you're in my opinion you know in my view you're talking about increasing friction with your clients to the improvement of everyone's experience and security, even, you know, the perception of security, but actual real security. Is that really, you know, do you guys think of risk as our risk management as friction management here? And sometimes you have to put the friction in whether you want to or not. Is that sort of a, a way of thinking about it at your level?
1: I think that's an absolutely appropriate way to think about it. And using DevSecOps is a really good example because it's going to have a multifold benefit when you add that friction, if you will, in that pipeline. But at the end of it, if it's an automated point of friction, then it actually becomes a more efficient way of, Getting code through the pipeline and ultimately getting it out to production, where customers could then leverage it. So, their friction in some cases can, if done the right way, can reduce the time rather than increase the time. Because I think there's a bit of a um, an anomaly as you think about the term friction that automatically means added time when hmm. ultimately if we do it the right way, we can actually reduce the amount of time ultimately. So you think about the idea uh, in the future, I know we're not quite there yet, but as as I think about an opportunity to move to passwordless, right? Today, a password is a point of friction, Mm -hmm. right? Everybody deals with passwords, but we also know that passwords are still one of the biggest ways in which threat actors are compromising our systems. They're compromising passwords, they're doing account takeovers either on our internal networks or with our clients. And even as we think about at the core of our own networks, passwords are still critical even for like service accounts. You know, you got these service accounts, you got to reset their passwords all the time and it's a, you know, bane to our existence in some cases. So how can we take a friction point like that and find ways to remove that friction? Mm -hmm. But doing it in a way that is innovative, automated, but still increments the level of control we have.
2: Yeah, Hmm. that's a very interesting uh, thought process and a great transition. Thank you, Keith. Why don't we look at the future now for a little bit? Let's look out five to seven years. Where's the industry moving? Where, where do the industry participants need to be prepared to help? Um, you know, from, a, from an executive perspective, sitting in the CSO office, what sort of things are you thinking that you need to really put your arms around next in order to get to the next level of security and solve the problems and gaps that are still out there today?
1: Yeah, and again, this is the the tale of two cities in some ways, especially for large banks that have been around a long while. I've got two views that I have to keep in mind. One is, how can I do some really innovative things, like I just mentioned, in moving to passwordless? Can I do that on my internal network? Can I do it with my clients? Can I automate a lot of the authorization controls that are behind the scenes to make it transparent but still add the right level of friction to make things more efficient for our clients and internal uh, employees but the other side of that story is i've still got a big mainframe system i've still got a bunch of legacy capabilities that have been there for 30 plus years so how do i bridge the gap between you know a fully cloud enabled environment where I can move things fast while at the same time still having some of those legacy systems capabilities and ultimately network controls to to deal with. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as as I think about my own company, we're beginning to look at the term we're using our big rocks. What are the big rocks that we we need to roll over over the next five to 10 years? And legacy systems are one of those things. Right? Because if you think about a legacy system that still requires certain layers of a network, which from a cybersecurity standpoint, still have vulnerability that I have to continue to monitor and manage, versus if I was able to leverage more of a primarily hybrid cloud environment and less about legacy systems, legacy tech, legacy switches, then I could focus my attention on the future of how can I enable data, access, controls, all in an environment that's democratized. And I mm-hmm. use that term purposefully because <clears throat> when when you've got a nice uh, environment that sits in the cloud, I can bring that to the point where... If the you know the old terms are around, you know, what's your network? Is it segmented, not segmented? Do you have micro-segmentation? You know, all, a lot of those concerns go away because of the the software that's available to me that's cloud enabled and much easier to implement in a cloud environment versus a legacy on-prem environment.
0: Mm-hmm. So it just as a kind of a yes or no, uh, but elaborate if you wish. Um is there a horizon where, you know, the, the 30-year-old mainframe can go away in any reasonable way? Or is that a tech debt that, you know, we're just straddled with forever? Not just, again, in your company. Again, everybody has, you know, 35-year-old mainframes hidden somewhere. <laughs> what do you think?
1: I think it's absolutely possible. and And as we look at some of the best use cases, from the financial services community, I looked to some of the banks in Australia where they've done that exact thing. They've gotten off of their mainframes, moved to a more modern type of a network, the way that uh, enables cloud in the right ways. And now, granted, they were really, really expensive <laughs> to, to make that transition, but the paybacks that they're seeing from what we're hearing from their, their uh, business cases and their use cases is pretty significant. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it is possible, but it's going to take the fortitude of not just the CIO, but the entire company to get behind those types of initiatives.
0: Yeah, i a quick anecdote. I'll tell you that Drew and I were uh, chatting with, um, I can't remember if that person was an actual CISO um, in title, but uh, they they were effectively that role. So it was 10, 11, 12 years ago. And um, that person told us that their mainframe was a security feature. They were keeping it on purpose. And, and we said, uh, you know, we were understandably curious. And um, we said, why? You know, advanced access control? Is it you know, the segmentation, micro segmentation, is it layers of control, lines of defense? And and he said, no, if, if anybody ever breaks into our system and tries to download our entire client database, the mainframe will crash. They can only download about a hundred names at a time. It'll take them days to download our entire database. So that's a security feature. And, you know, Drew and I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Drew and I still that way?
1: talk.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making this up. Drew and I still talk about this to this day. So that's all in saying, is there, you know, is, does the old way hold some security merit that might (laughs) be hard to replicate in the new way?
1: Yeah, and and I'll I'll take it from a different slant than (laughs) that quote unquote previous CISO but I'll I'll take the same ideology. So if you look at a lot of that old technology versus the malware that we're seeing in the market today, a lot of the times the malware is being incremented in its own capability based upon current, mostly current environments, mostly current technology. So at previous firms unnamed, we may have seen malware that we were exposed to, but it didn't affect us because our systems were too old and the malware was written for newer versions. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, that's great. So so Sammy, you know, uh, again, I'll say that in a little different way, but there are some merits to older systems, especially if they're solid because they, in some cases, keep you out of harm's way because they're old and the threat actors aren't looking for old stuff.
0: Yeah, and, and, uh, your, employees probably aren't, and your employees probably aren't mining Bitcoin on it. <laughs> no,
1: no, no, not usually. <laughs> However, the one reality, though, is, and every bank's dealing with this, is some of the folks that have the skill sets for those old systems, um, I don't want to say they're dying off, but they're retiring off. Yes. Hey,
0: easy, easy young fella. <laughs> <laughs> it's very true. Yep.
2: So, Keith, I mean, you've you've evolved now, you've gone from a from a BSO role to a CISO role to now a CSO role. what do you find is different and challenging about this CSO role that you didn't have in the previous roles? What was yeah. surprising that first day when you showed up and went, oh, I'm responsible for that now.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's interesting, Drew. And, and honestly, that's what's been the fun about this role is because obviously I've got my responsibilities to protect our company, our employees, our clients, and data and infrastructure, all of that. However, I now am also responsible for defining the future of where we're going. So I also own the tech strategy. So from an architecture perspective, how are we looking forward that's gonna drive a future state architecture that's going to enable all of these security controls to be effective in the long-term? While at the same time, thinking about how can we continue to enable our businesses for growth? Thinking about data and analytics and AI, how can we do those in a safe way where again, since I own both sides of the fence, I can determine how those types of new capabilities are deployed because one of the things that I've heard in market as a lot of, maybe not necessarily banks, but a lot of other companies, as they implement analytics and AI, the big concerns around our security, access, should these people really have access to all this data? Are we exposing ourselves from an AI perspective? Mm-hmm. So I get to put a different lens over those capabilities yeah. to show that, yep, we're doing this, and I'll pull out an old term, Drew, secure by design. <laughs> I love it. Right? right. So we're pulling all of the controls to the forefront while still not diluting the benefit on the end.
0: Hmm. And, and does your democratizing concept come in here as well? 100%.
1: So we're in the middle of, and I use that term with our business partners, democratizing our data, where we're taking it from an existing on-prem, highly uh, fragmented uh, way of holding and storing our data to a new cloud environment. We're calling it Edge. So that we can have that new mesh data structure to enable and allow through the right access controls, all of our businesses to leverage all of our corporate data because we're we're beginning to use the different terms to say this is not your data, this is CIBC's data. So we're going to leverage it in that way for the common good of all of the businesses together, mm-hmm. right? But the cool part is now all of the stuff that we've been doing around building data security controls between obfuscation, encryption, tokenization, all that stuff that people used to think, oh, that's that nerdy tech stuff. Now they're really, they're now really concerned about it, saying, okay, so if my data is going up here, are you putting the right level of control around it so that it's not gonna get misused, right? So it's the those two worlds converging, and. Where it used to seem like an anchor, now is becoming a huge enabler.
0: Cool. <clears throat> and your clients, users, the public are more savvy. So are they asking you better questions for which you are now motivated to be able to provide better answers? I
1: think the questions from a client standpoint, unfortunately, are coming when something goes bump in the night, Uh right? So they don't necessarily know the right questions to ask at a level of detail yet until there's been some sort of scam that they've been hit with, yeah, right? So, you know, my grandmother, she got this call and... They convinced her to, you know, send twenty thousand dollars because of X, Y, and Z. Why didn't you protect my grandmother? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Those are the kind of questions that we're getting, which, as you guys know, is a very layered response, because it's not just okay. What are the fraud controls that should have detected this as an anomaly? Right. But it even goes beyond that to say, what is our responsibility? to protect our clients outside of transactions that can you know, we um authorize mm-hmm. right because this is the the what a client's as you guys know the the liability is very different if someone has their account or their credit card hacked and a transaction occurs and you know it's fraudulent well mm-hmm. absolutely we're gonna cover that transaction. If a client is scammed into doing something and it looks to us and it actually is that person doing a transaction, it becomes a very gray area. So there's a lot of education that I still think that needs to happen around the client standpoint and they'd only know to ask it, I think, when
0: something bad happens. Yeah or
2: they hear that it happened to their neighbor or their friend.
1: You're correct. Exactly, mm-hmm. exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah, what is that new shared responsibility model? Um, I, I wanted to ask you one, one other question as we, as we start to wind down for today. Um, you were talking about uh, ident- uh, identity earlier, basically ident- uh, identification, authentication. Um, a lot of what we learned about that, well, Everything we learned about that really came from managing humans and and we had one human, and they had one identity, maybe two because they were an administrator or something. but that was that was a manageable problem. Um, and you know, humans came and went at a somewhat um, understandable pace. You know, we hired some new people, we let some people go. Um, today we have bots and they have identities and, and they have secrets and they log into things and they have access and they do things and we can make thousands of them uh, with, you know, in an infrastructure as code sort of way. Um, what does identity management mean for thousands of bots that wink into and out of existence, on a moment's notice, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and the dynamic has definitely changed as automation has become a, more of a core driver. And with automation, to your point, comes more bots, more service accounts. And how do we effectively manage those to where we know for, for fairly certainty that if you're going to stand up a bot it's going to be in this box, here's what it needs access to, here's when it needs that access, and how do we ensure that no person can go manipulate that access? Mm -hmm. So that's where, you know, if you think about vaulting, especially credentials, becomes really important, as, as well as secrets management. Because... You know, a lot of this is gonna be happening in cloud, it's gonna be happening on-prem. How do you ensure you've got continuity and consistency in a hybrid environment to where you can't have multiple versions of the same identity, just because one may sit on our on-prem environment, one may sit in the cloud. You've gotta have convergence to get to single identities or what that service or person needs to do, even if that means you have to do real-time augmentation of what that access may need to look like. So, for example, one of the things that we're doing is as you look at even an administrator, they don't have access to the world, Mm -hmm. but they can go in and they can request access for a certain thing at a certain time for a certain period of time. And then once that, thing that they did is done, then that access is then revoked, right? So it's point in time access to limit our exposure so that we don't have the same type of concern that we did many years ago where a threat actor could come in and leverage an, an administrator's account to traverse the network and find ways to get elevated privilege, right? So you're doing, we're doing it in an automated way that helps mitigate most of that threat, obviously not all, but that's a way that we're looking at identity. Mm-hmm. Now, cli- clients are a whole different story, right? Because clients are going to freely give up you know, their email addresses and their um, their cell phone numbers and all of these things that we use as identifiers in some mm-hmm. cases. So we're having to get very creative to find ways to identify an identity of a person or an entity by other means. That's why behavior um, and then industry consortium uh, information is becoming so much more critical so that we can identify, yep, we've seen that machine with that IP address at XBank. It's in a consortium. We can pull that down, leverage the same information to know that, oh, that's actually a threat actor.
2: Got it. Yeah, I, I think identity is, uh, I, I hear more and more about this, Keith. Um, do you see the banks kind of joining together to work on this problem and solve this identity problem? Because I agree with you. If you could get rid of passwords, you get rid of a big attack surface. Um, but solving that problem is not, not simple. Um, you know, do, are there people out there in the world working on this today?
1: absolutely but i will say that i don't know that i would go as far as to say that we're working together as banks on it okay. <laughs> you know over over the past decade maybe even going back 15 years there have been multiple starts and stops on could we get to a common identity could there be some sort of federated identity capability that sits out there that all the banks could use it's validated we know that it's something that we could leverage that we would trust for financial transactions yep and we've never been able to get there
2: yeah it's so, a it's a hard problem to solve there's no doubt about it but it's it's kind of the holy grail right i mean you solve a lot of problems if you can get there
1: it really is you know identity is the new perimeter you know, yep. <laughs> you know it's the new black if you will and But if you can find ways within your own ecosystem to reduce your false positives around identity, find kind of a better way to, again, going back to the tension word, reduce the tension, increase the security value, you're going to increase client satisfaction while increasing um, security measures at the same time right so that, that's yep. that's you talked about holy grail from a client standpoint that's the holy grail
2: that's where, a win-win with without yep. a doubt I agree yeah well Keith this has been really interesting we definitely appreciate you sharing all your thoughts with us today and uh, thank you for, for being on the show I uh, hope to see you in person uh, sometime soon I'll try to get up to Toronto and maybe have a visit uh, without a doubt it's been too long since we've uh, had a chance to break bread Uh, 100% agree, that'd um, be great. Yeah, so thank you so much and um, we will see you soon.
1: Sounds great, thanks guys, always good to chat. Yeah,
0: thank you very much.